Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another SWART podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about sodium bicarbonate and the pre-hospital care world. I have joining with me today Dr. Shane Freeman. He is a fourth-year emergency medicine resident uh, with the Western program. And aside from being an expert in sodium bicarbonate, he actually gave this as a grand rounds topic last year to the entire emergency medicine department. He's doing a fellowship this year in point of care or POCUS ultrasound. So we're really lucky to have him joining us today. Hi, Shane. How are you doing? Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's going to be interesting because as much controversy as there is in the pre-hospital world, there's just as much controversy with bicarb in the hospital world. So it's be good. There you go. You just heard the summary there. So let's do a quick review of bicarb in the pre-hospital care world. So if you read through the entire ALS-PCS document, you'll find that sodium bicarbonate is not mentioned under any medical directive. However, it is within the ministry-mandated equipment that's to be carried by ACP medics. So it leaves a lot of questions about it. So with all these questions about bicarb, Shane, what are we hoping to cover today? Yeah, so I think we're hoping to get to the answer to some of these questions, at least. And the big question is, why do some docs give bicarb to everyone and some don't give it to anyone? What about those prolonged cardiac arrests that you guys may be involved in? What about DKAs? We already know somebody's acidotic. Things like crush injuries. What about overdoses? And then finally, what about hyperkalemia? And we're going to work on getting into each of those scenarios in the next little while. The one important thing to point out is there is all this controversy surrounding bicarb that just isn't in the pre-hospital world. So in the emergency department, the ICU, there's very differing opinions on when it should be used and what its role is that's going to continue on to this podcast. So we'll try to review the evidence for these situations and make it as objective as possible and go from there. Awesome. Thanks, Shane. So before we go into the nitty gritty of each of those topics that we talked about, why don't you give us a little bit of a review of what sodium bicarb is and the theory in giving it? Yeah, so if you reach back to chemistry somewhere back in high school, the human body is basically trying to maintain this neutral pH, which is a measure of acid or base status, somewhere in the number of 7.35 to 7.45. And again, pH is this measure of how acidic or basic solution or environment is. And if you could think of it as acids and bases at a balance scale, you know, one of those scales you see from movies where there's two platforms either suspended by a string or a lever in the middle, and they're trying to balance that. And when the blood pH is 7.4, the two sides of the scale are balanced at the same height. So something that makes the blood more acidic will lower the pH and tips that balance one way. And something that makes the blood more basic makes the pH go up and tips the balance the opposite way. And then there's lots of things that make the blood become more acidic or decrease the pH. And the big things we look at are things like lactate. So that's when the body's not receiving adequate blood supply to all its organs. So situations like sepsis, loss of adequate heart function if someone has a major myocardial infarction, or in severe dehydration or hypovolemia. Also on that list is ineffective breathing or respiratory failure. So things like COPD exacerbations or asthma exacerbations when you can't get rid of the carbon dioxide by breathing, it's going to accumulate, which causes an acidosis to occur, and that's going to lower your pH as well. Other things on that list are things like ketones. So if the body doesn't have an adequate fuel to burn, mostly carbohydrates, it's going to shift to burning fat, which produces ketones as a byproduct, and that'll cause an acidosis. And then finally, kidney disease. So if the kidneys aren't working well to get rid of waste products like they're usually designed to do, then that can accumulate and cause acidosis as well. 
If we look at the other side of the scale, things that make the blood become more basic or raise the pH, the big one we're going to see is hyperventilating or breathing fast. And just like having too much carbon dioxide makes the pH go down or become acidic, in this case, you're blowing off all the carbon dioxide and the blood actually becomes more basic. Other things on the list to raise your pH, so significant vomiting, things like losing your electrolytes and acids from the stomach, if gastroenteritis or something's ongoing, or certain medications, so excessive water pill or diuretic use can make you go a little bit basic as well. So sodium bicarbonate itself has a pH of 8.3, and this means if we want to tip our balance scale back towards the basic or higher pH side, we'd give sodium bicarb. And that's again with it always trying to keep that in balance. So in a perfect world, if a blood pH was low or acidic, we just add some sodium bicarb and even it out. However, unfortunately, sodium bicarb doesn't quite work like that's magical formula in the real world. It has its own negative side effects. And the main negative effects are it can actually raise a patient's sodium quite significantly since the little ampules of bicarb, despite being small, have tons of sodium in them. It can also lower their blood calcium, and in some cases, as weird as it sounds, make the acidosis worse. Wow, Shane, that's kind of counterintuitive. Can you tell us a little bit about why acidosis can be made worse by bicarb? Yeah, sure. We can, we'll talk a little bit about this later, but to oversimplify chemistry for a moment, going back to our balance scale, when sodium bicarb gets added to the blood, it's important to remember it has this negative ionic charge, which is the little negative sign when you see it written out next to it. And just like old saying goes, negative attracts positive. So in this case, it combines with the hydrogen ions, which are little positive ions in the blood. And when those two combine, they form water or H2O, but also carbon dioxide. And it's been difficult to study and prove in research, but the big important thing to remember is if someone's not breathing adequately and you're giving bicarb and making all this carbon dioxide, then the carbon dioxide itself can accumulate and move into the cells and cause a worsening of the acidosis. So similar to when you see a high CO2 and a COPD exacerbation, the bicarb will make this carbon dioxide go up and then you get more acidosis. Okay, so the body is more complicated than just those law and order scales we were talking about there. So good to know. So now we're going to be talking about the case of bicarb in specific situations. So this will help you with your pre-hospital care practice. So we're going to go through some common scenarios that come up when bicarb is thought to potentially play a role. Most of you medics have probably experienced variable responses from base hospital physicians when patching about bicarb. Some docs advise to give it, whereas others advise against it. This controversy often arises because the evidence both for and against bicarb is quite sparse. This sparse evidence to the pre-hospital situation adds to the fact that we're not able to obtain blood work and we don't have all the information in the pre-hospital care world. So it really turns into a bit of a messy situation. So we're going to help you run through those situations. The particular ones we're going to run through are cardiac arrest, hyperkalemia, when extricating a crush injury, patients with diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA, tricyclic antidepressants, and toxicologic overdoses. So let's start with cardiac arrest. So Dr. Freeman, can you tell us about bicarb in cardiac arrest? Yeah, so cardiac arrest probably the most common situation where this is going to come up uh, and specifically when you should be given bicarb when you shouldn't. And if we think back to our talk on things that make someone's blood pH become lower to become more acidic, cardiac arrest actually checks a lot of those boxes. So the acidosis and low pH we see in cardiac arrest, the big things are a loss of heart pump function in cardiac arrest causing insufficient blood circulation. So when the organs don't get enough blood because the heart's not pumping, it generates lactate and byproducts, which make that acidosis accumulate. 
Um, and then the other big thing is a loss of breathing, obviously with respiratory arrest, you get the carbon dioxide rising and that also contributes to the acidosis. Great. So Dr. Freeman, can you tell us about the guidelines um, behind resuscitation and bicarb? Yeah, so the American Heart Association just released the newest guidelines, the 2020 guidelines within the last week or so here. So a lot of people are still digesting their way through that. But the new guidelines basically say routine use of bicarb is not recommended for patients with cardiac arrest. And they go on to clarify that this level of evidence B, which basically means this moderate level of evidence from at least one randomized control trial. There haven't been a whole lot of clinical trials and observational studies since the 2010 guidelines came out that yielded any new evidence to shift our perception of what we should be doing, specifically in the undifferentiated cardiac arrest. In that situation, we still don't know, but there's some evidence existing that actually shows it may worsen survival and neurological recovery, and we'll talk about this more shortly. They further add that bicarb itself may be beneficial in some special circumstances, which is hyperkalemia and drug overdose. And we'll talk more about the hyperkalemia and overdose situations because there may not be great evidence for that either. Great. So we're going to be talking about those specific situations later. In the meantime, Dr. Freeman, can you tell us about the evidence behind the use of bicarb in just all comers for cardiac arrest? Yeah, so that's something the evidence for where these guidelines are calling on. So first, we'll talk about in-hospital, and these are cardiac arrests run in-hospital. Most of these studies have been done in the emergency department or ward or ICU setting. And reviewing the four larger studies that have been done in this field, uh, comparing when it's given versus not given, a few key conclusions come up. And the big one, first one is no difference in return of spontaneous circulation or ROSC when giving it versus not giving bicarb in all coming cardiac arrest. And the other difference is that for those patients who end up surviving their cardiac arrest, they don't seem to have any difference in their neurologic function or outcome from that cardiac arrest. So let's move on to the more relevant thing in the pre-hospital and EMS world. And there's actually been one major study back in 2005 looking at EMS services uh, in their use of bicarb. And specifically what they did is they kind of looked at bicarb use in EMS services using more than uh, in more than 50% of their cardiac arrest using bicarb versus those services who use it in less than 50% of their cardiac arrests. So for example, to simplify that, we're comparing City A City A's EMS service, who uses bicarb in almost all their cardiac arrests, to City B's, uh, who uses it very rarely. And when you look at the initial results, return of spontaneous circulation, they see 33.5% of the cardiac arrests attended by services using bicarb often uh, get ROSC, or return of spontaneous circulation, versus 25.7. So again, it seems like more people are getting ROSC when using bicarb in those situations. And in terms of patients making it to the hospital discharge, 5.3% of the arrests receiving bicarb versus 3% in the ones rarely getting bicarb. And again, this is a whole service-wide thing, but an initial first impression, bicarb seems to make a difference here. Mm. However, when you go deep uh, dive into the literature there and actually look at it on an individual level rather than as a whole service responding to all coming cardiac arrest, it tells a bit of a different story. So when you look at individual cardiac arrests attended by these services, it basically shows 44% of patients with return of spontaneous circulation got bicarb, but also 57.5% of those who never got ROSC got bicarb. So when we break that down, it actually looks like there's a majority of patients who never got ROSC that got bicarb compared to a smaller percentage of those that did get ROSC that got bicarb. And if this all sounds confusing, the bottom line of the study to take away is that there's lots and lots of patients in cardiac arrest that receive bicarb, including more that didn't get ROSC than those who did. 
And it raised a couple of questions. Is there a question of detrimental effect of the bicarb itself, since more the more patients who got bicarb never got ROSC? Or is bicarb often used in those with a poor prognosis, such as the ones with long downtime, longer arrest, found without vital signs long after seen well? Are we more often to give bicarb in those situations? And that kind of explains the, the difference we're seeing. But if we summarize all that in a bottom line, there's no evidence from studies that giving sodium bicarb improves chances of getting spontaneous return of circulation or surviving with a good neuro outcome in our current literature for cardiac arrest. That's a fantastic summary. Thank you very much, Dr. Freeman. So now we're going to move on to some of the specific situations. Next up, we're going to be talking about hyperkalemia. So before we go through the evidence for using bicarb in suspected hyperkalemia, let's quickly review the actual ACP medical directive for hyperkalemia. So the directive deals with two therapies, uh, particularly calcium gluconate and salbutamol or Ventolin. The indications to treat for hyperkalemia require two things. So one, suspected hyperkalemia in patients at high risk, which includes those currently on dialysis or a history of end-stage renal disease or a relevant history. So they give the specific example of prolonged crush injury, which we're actually going to be discussing later with Dr. Freeman. But real quick, uh, Shane, does the history of somebody who was just extricated from a crush injury get you worried about hyperkalemia? Yeah, not not really. When you respond acutely, if you're responding within the first 12 hours, the chance of significant hyperkalemia is pretty low overall. Perfect. Thanks. And again, we're going to be chatting about that again, but I just wanted to highlight that point. The second aspect of the indications in which to use the hyperkalemia medical directive is that the current clinical situation supports hyperkalemia with cardiac arrest or pre-arrest with 12 lead ECG changes associated with hyperkalemia. So these patients have to be quite sick. And in the clinical considerations, the specific 12 lead ECG changes associated with hyperkalemia are QRS greater than or equal to 120 milliseconds, peaked T waves, loss of P waves, and or a QRS complex with a sine wave appearance. So now that we've discussed the indications, recall that the treatment listed in the directive lists only those two medications, so calcium gluconate and salbutamol. So calcium gluconate acts to protect the heart from the effect of potassium and is the mainstay of treatment. It acts to buy time while we lower the potassium, whereas Ventolin acts to reduce blood potassium by causing it to move out of the blood and into the cells. So we already talked a little bit about how sometimes bicarb with the movement of solutes across the membrane can actually increase your H plus or acidosis. This is different. So it's potassium shifting into the cells and out of the blood with Ventolin. So that's how that works. So Dr. Freeman, I know you're here to talk about bicarb, but is there evidence for these two treatment modalities in hyperkalemia, specifically calcium and Ventolin? Yeah, so we're not going to deep dive the evidence on these two things, but rest assured there is good evidence and both theoretic and mechanistic for both of these treatments. Perfect. So big thumbs up for those two that are written into your medical directive. So now that we've talked about what's written into the directive, let's talk about what's not written clearly into the medical directive and bicarb. Yeah, so before we jump into the evidence, let's refresh the theory on how we're treating high blood potassium like Dr. Valdez was just referring to. So think of the body as two big compartments separated by this barrier in the middle. And on one side of the barrier, you have your blood. And on the other side, you have the inside of your cells. So the goal with treating potassium is to get the potassium to move from compartment with the blood through that barrier into the number of cells or shift the potassium. 
And there are a number of ways to do this. And there's a number of ways, specifically sodium bicarb is thought to affect potassium. And if we look at the ways that if giving sodium bicarb would affect potassium, the three big ones I want to touch on is number one, this shift. And that's this major mechanism of causing potassium to go into the cells out of the blood by giving bicarb. The second would be the kidneys. And the thought is that bicarb actually causes the kidneys to pick up the pace and get rid of potassium in the urine faster. And then the third one is you're actually just diluting things out. So if you give any fluid without potassium in it, like the small amp of bicarb or a normal saline, then you'll dilute the potassium that's already in the blood. Now, in theory, all of these mechanisms would cause your potassium to go down. So shifting, getting the kidneys to excrete it, and diluting it out, all would cause potassium to go down. But there is, like everything, one big outstanding caveat, and that's that bicarb ampules it comes in are very concentrated. And what this means is that there's a lot of solute or substance dissolved in the fluid that carries it. And when this reaches the blood, the body wants to do one thing, and that's equalize the amount of substance or solute in the blood in the cell. So those two compartments need to be equalized in their concentration. So when you dump a bunch of concentrated solute or substance in the blood, the cells respond by pushing fluid into the blood to dilute out that substance and equalize those two things in the compartment. The problem in this case is when we put the hypertonic or concentrated uh, bicarb into the blood, the cells respond by putting out that fluid, but that fluid also has potassium in it. And this results in potassium increasing in the blood. So not as intuitive as we thought on first glance. What about the guidelines? We're always going to go back to the guidelines. Dr. Freeman, did they help us out at all? Yeah, and if we look at the clinical consideration section, you'll find a point that says sodium bicarbonate is not a very effective agent for hyperkalemia and so should not routinely be administered. Gotcha. And can you take us through the evidence behind this statement? Yeah, and we can summarize this as all studies point to one major conclusion, and that's when giving those ampules of sodium bicarb to patients with hyperkalemia, it either results in no change in potassium or in some cases actually increasing the blood potassium. Uh, And studies comparing all different treatment options for hyperkalemia, including sodium bicarb, and they also look at things comparing it to Ventolin or epinephrine, and they work in the same way, the Ventolin being easy to give, and that's why it's in the, the medical directives, but also insulin and glucose, which we use in hospital. It shows basically that insulin and glucose is by and large the most effective treatment in shifting that potassium and lowering it, more effective than Ventolin and epinephrine, and even and definitely more effective than sodium bicarb. And there is some research that suggests that bicarb may have a role, but the big thing is it's not in the form that we typically give it in ampules or syringes. And the only benefit in theory would be giving sodium bicarbonate diluted out in liters of IV fluid. And again, going back to that dilution or concentration thing we were talking about, where if you can dilute it out enough, you're getting a lot of fluid that doesn't have potassium in it, and you're basically diluting the potassium that's already in the blood to lower it. And obviously giving liters of IV fluid to a patient with kidney problems, which is often the case with hyperkalemia, isn't the best case scenario either. So coming back to the bottom line of all of uh, the evidence for bicarb in hyperkalemia, there's no evidence supporting sodium bicarbonate for hyperkalemia. And the key is to focus on what works. In the pre-hospital setting, that's calcium and Ventolin and getting the patient to definitive care where other options like insulin and glucose are available. And then, of course, in severe cases, things like dialysis. That's a fantastic summary. Thank you so much, Dr. Freeman. All right, now we're on to crush injuries. So Dr. Freeman, you've already alluded to the fact that crush injuries are not a great clinical concern uh, for needing bicarb acutely, so when they're immediately extricated. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about that? 
Yeah, so the concern with crush injuries is something called rhabdomyolysis, which is a big word for the muscles in the area of the crush injury releasing things like from the muscle compartment, so potassium and byproducts. And those things can go on to cause acute kidney injury and failure. And there's a couple tests in hospital you do for this, including things like creatinine kinase and potassium and things that make up muscle that get released, and that kind of indicates this rhabdomyolysis. The association of crush injuries themselves with this rhabdomyolysis and kidney failure has been studied for over a century, uh, even describing individuals trapped from, in debris from the London bombings of World War II. So really the interest in sodium bicarbonate and crush injury stems from two things. And number one, that's the hyperkalemia or high potassium released from the injured and crushed muscles, which we talked about briefly. And then number two is protecting the kidneys from the harmful byproducts released from these crushed muscles. And this is when the acute versus subacute crush injury type question comes in. And the release of potassium and byproducts from crushed muscles isn't instantaneous. It really starts four to six hours after the injury when the blood supply to that crushed area is restored. So if you have crushed muscle without blood supply, there's nothing to leave that area. But when you put blood supply back in there, then that stuff starts to circulate. And we see the peak hyperkalemia and renal injury often seven to 10 days after a crush injury. So actually quite prolonged uh, after the injury itself. And what this means for our choice of therapy when extricating this patient is the traditional fear of byproduct release is less concerning immediately following the injury when you guys are responding. So it's not an instantaneous explosion where all of the potassium is leaked out right away after extrication when you're pulling the patient out. Gotcha. All right. And Dr. Freeman, I'm sure you've got some evidence to tell us about. Yeah. And again, this has been studied for years. The interest of this, like I said, has been going on for over a century, but particularly studies have looked at the role of sodium bicarbonate in that second part, which is preventing kidney injury and death in hospital rather than the pre-hospital setting. And two major takeaways from this evidence is number one, first, if we go back to our talk on hyperkalemia and sodium bicarb, recall that there's no benefit in giving the sodium bicarb, especially the concentrated version. Therefore, we wouldn't expect a benefit coming here either when the hyperkalemia is caused by crush injuries. And the second part is studies specifically looking at crush injuries don't show any benefit of sodium bicarb either. And the majority of evidence, including the meta-analysis, which basically takes all the available evidence and summarizes it on the topic, suggests that the priority is just fluids in general rather than sodium bicarb itself. And there's really no difference in no outcomes between those who got sodium bicarb and those who didn't. So again, if we had to give a bottom line to this crush injury topic, there's no evidence to suggest that sodium bicarb should be given in crush injury extrication. And again, focus on the good supportive care and uh, including the immediate threats to life. So things like airway, long bone fractures, pelvic fractures, spinal injuries. Focusing on those rather than giving bicarb to prevent any theoretic downstream effects is going to be a much bigger uh, benefit for your patient. Another fantastic summary. So now we're going to shift our focus from hyperkalemia and resuscitation covered in the last three scenarios. Remember, at the start of this conversation, when we talked about the theory behind why bicarb works, we talked about our balance scale. The body is always trying to maintain a balance between the two sides with acidosis on one and basicity on the other. If there was ever a situation when simply giving a basic solution to try to balance out an acidic environment is going to work, we think it would be diabetic ketoacidosis or DKA. But does that theory hold up? Recall the only mention of DKA specifically in the ALS-PCS is under the Intravenous and Fluid Medical Therapy Medical Directive. Within it is a reminder that there is a mandatory provincial patch point for patients less than 12 years old with suspected DKA before initiating a fluid bolus. As we discussed in your 2019 MCME, so that was the one that had the pediatric focus, 
This is because of the increased risk of cerebral edema in this population. So now let's talk about bicarb, and maybe, maybe cerebral edema will come up again. Dr. Freeman, take it away. Yeah, so if we go outside the the traditional guidelines here and we look at Diabetes Canada clinical practice guidelines, most recently in 2018 is the uh, most recent available document. They make a quote here saying sodium bicarbonate therapy may be considered in adult individuals in shock or with arterial pH less than 7.0. Again, remember that 7.4 is normal, so 7.0 is quite low. And they go on to describe risk of giving sodium bicarbonate to patients with diabetic ketoacidosis, which we'll touch on shortly. But then let's let's take a look at the actual studies and evidence that back this up. And the best evidence comes from a systematic review summarizing, again, all the available studies on the topic. And we're going to divide this into adults and children since they uh, have a little bit different physiology when it comes to the diabetic ketoacidosis state. So when we look at adults, the big takeaway is there's no difference in mortality or death between those receiving bicarb versus those who don't. Also, they don't see any change in vital signs, and it comes with its own problems. So some of these studies suggest that the acidosis actually worsens, which we talked about previously, and you actually end up needing to give more potassium to those patients receiving bicarb, so more resource intensive as well. And the bottom line in adults is no benefit, but perhaps harms or detrimental effects of giving sodium bicarbonate. So we definitely stay away from it. Now, if we look at the side of the pediatric side of things, no study could comment on mortality in this population. However, the big takeaway is kids getting bicarb tend to be in hospital longer and have a higher risk, again, of the cerebral edema, which is that brain swelling due to the rapid shifts in fluid between the two compartments, the blood and the cells. And when we treat DKA in hospital, specifically pediatric population, cerebral edema is our most feared complication. So if we were to bottom line this one, there's no evidence of benefit and certainly evidence of potential harm and more resources being required uh, when giving bicarb and DKA. So we stay away from bicarb and DKA, especially in that pediatric population. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dr. Freeman. So we're now going to move on to specific poisonings and overdoses. We've been talking a while about bicarb, and so far we can sum up everything we talked about, including cardiac arrest, hyperkalemia, crush injuries, DKA as there's no great evidence for giving bicarb. So now we're going to shift our focus and we're going to talk about something where there actually is some benefit in specific overdoses. Dr. Freeman, take it away. Yeah, so bicarb has been looked at a ton of different overdoses. So the big ones are tricyclic antidepressants, diphenhydramine or Benadryl, and some cardiac drugs, aspirin, toxic alcohols. So what we're going to focus on in particular is one overdose, which is tricyclic antidepressants. And why we're going to do that is because these patients tend to get sick quite fast, and bicarb in the pre-hospital setting here may actually save a life. So what do we mean by tricyclic antidepressants or TCAs, as you also have them called by? So TCA refers to a specific class of antidepressants, and the two most well-known members of this family are amitriptyline or nortriptyline. And originally, going back uh, quite some years ago, they developed to treat depression. And the way they do that is they act on many different receptors, causing a wide range of effects. And those effects are both positive in treating depression. They work quite well for that, but also some negative side effects, including things like seizures and cardiac toxicity from arrhythmias. And that's just because of the wide-ranging effects that they have on different receptors. Now, fortunately, tricyclic antidepressant overdoses have actually declined quite substantially over years, particularly because they're uh, being used much less commonly today. However, they are used for a couple different things still in today's medical society, uh, even outside of depression. So things like sleep aids and sometimes the treatment of nerve-related pain. So they're still available. 
Fantastic. Dr. Freeman, can you take us through the guidelines and the evidence, please? Yeah. So the 2020 AHA guidelines, which again is a fresh document that came out the last couple of weeks, refers to sodium bicarbonate really in only one circumstance, where they mention that the administration of sodium bicarbonate for cardiac arrest or life-threatening cardiac conduction delays. So again, that's QRS complex being wider than 120 milliseconds or three small boxes under your CG. Uh, in the context of sodium channel blocker or tricyclic antidepressant overdose. So that's a lot of jargon there, but basically what that boils down to is consider sodium bicarb when patients are very sick and that's after taking a sodium channel blocker or tricyclic antidepressant overdose and they're having some ECG changes to suggest that's the reason they're sick. And in this case, they recommend the, uh, the recommendation is a 2A, which means benefit outweighs the risk in this population. Now, Moving on to the evidence itself, let's look at why TCAs cause toxicity and overdose, and that'll explain why giving sodium bicarbonate works. And the main problem with these TCAs when taken in excess is that they block the sodium channels. And sodium channels are found throughout the body, but in a couple key areas. And the first one is the heart, where they're responsible for transmitting the electrical impulse through the heart. The second big place is the brain, where they do the same thing. They transmit neural signals through the nervous system. Now, if we excessively block these channels with your tricyclic antidepressants, you get the major manifestations of a tricyclic antidepressant overdose. And in the heart, that's referred, that blocking of sodium channels gives you arrhythmias like ventricular fibrillation. And the first sign you're going to see on ECG is that widening of the QRS itself. The second big manifestation that uh, is of concern is in the brain, and blocking those sodium channels actually gives you seizures. And interestingly, again, widening of the QRS uh, can predict seizures in these patients as well. Now, the studies looking at sodium bicarbonate suggest it's the ideal antidote initially by at least two major mechanisms in these tricyclic antidepressants. And number one, there's a benefit from the sodium itself. So remember earlier when we talked about how concentrated the ampules of bicarbonate are, that's the beneficial part here. So when giving an ampule of sodium bicarbonate, it's almost like giving hypertonic saline. There's so much sodium in it that it gives this concentrated bolus to overcome the blockage of the sodium channels. So that's benefit number one. Benefit number two is the bicarbonate part itself. And when you raise the blood pH, it actually helps knock the tricyclic antidepressant off the sodium channel itself, reducing toxicity. So there seems to be a two prongs approach uh, to benefit from sodium bicarb here. So again, if we take a look at the bottom line on tricyclic antidepressants, sodium bicarb works to initially treat the seizures and arrhythmias and TCA toxicity. And what I would recommend is consider patching very early for a sick patient with a history of TCA ingestion for bicarbonate. And also, like the cardiac medical directive says, consider very early transport of cardiac arrest patients with potential overdose or toxicity cause of arrest. That's a fantastic summary. Thanks again, Dr. Freeman. And I'm going to put in a quick plug here that as part of your 2019 MCME pre-course, so you can go on the Paramedic Portal of Ontario and have a look at that. Uh, there, It was an ACP case on overdose and specifically a TCA uh, overdose that happened in real life. So you can actually go through all of these teaching points and a little bit of the evidence and uh, pathophys as a review. So if you want to check that out, please do so. So now we're going to switch gears and go to the overall bottom line on bicarb. We've covered a lot of ground today on bicarb when we should and shouldn't be using it. Remember, we're always trying to balance the acid and base scale, but there's a lot more to just giving bicarb, which will make the patient less acidotic, more basic. So let's go over the bottom lines one more time for each of the scenarios we've talked about. So 
Dr. Freeman, if you could tell me about bicarbonate in cardiac arrest, the bottom line? Yeah, the bottom line is likely no benefit of giving sodium bicarb in all cardiac arrests. Focus on the things that change outcomes. So those are the high quality CPR and defibrillating shockable rhythms early in the arrest. And the bottom line on bicarbonate and hyperkalemia. Yeah, again, no benefit of giving sodium bicarbonate in the ampule form in these patients. Focus on giving the calcium gluconate if it's indicated by your medical directive and transporting to definitive care. The bottom line on bicarbonate in crush injury. And this one overlaps a lot with the hyperkalemia evidence above. Once again, no evidence uh, suggesting benefit of giving it and focus on the immediate threats to life from the trauma in general. So the airway, the fractures, the spinal injuries, things like that. And what about the bottom line in bicarbonate in DKA? Yeah, once again, no evidence of benefit for those in DKA. And in some cases may actually do quite a bit of harm, such as cerebral edema in kids. So no evidence supporting it. And lastly, the bottom line in bicarbonate in TCA overdose. Yeah, and finally, we have a situation where in the sick patient who took an overdose of that TCA, bicarb can be beneficial. So if they're sick and you're seeing arrhythmias or seizures with a known ingestion, get that patch in early for bicarb. And if they're asymptomatic but reporting ingestion, doing an ECG and transporting promptly because they can get sick real quick is key. Well, that is fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Freeman, for joining us today. We know you're really busy with all the things that uh, you're doing right now with regards to your education and your clinical practice. So we really appreciate you bringing your expertise here today. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the podcast. It's been a pleasure. So if you guys have any questions about this uh, podcast at all, please send them to myself. It's Lauren, L-A-U-R-E-N dot Valdis, V-A-L-D-I-S at L-H-S-C dot O-N dot C-A. And thanks again for tuning in. Stay safe. Take care.